This week is Parshas Balak. Balak is uh, one of the Parshas that's named after a person. And this Balak individual is the king of Moab. Moab is the next nation that has that is in the crosshairs of the Jewish people. At the end of last week's Parsha, we read about how the Jews had swamped uh, Emor and what they'd done to the other neighboring countries of Moab. And Moab recognized that the only way for them to to be successful or to prevail uh, over this new threat would be if they commissioned a sorcerer, a prophet, to curse them. And there was a prophet in the neighborhood by the name of Bilam, who was very adept at cursing, and his curses would uh, inflict tremendous harm on the subjects of those curses. So the essentially the whole parsha is when uh, is the whole back and forth of hiring this sorcerer and then his very fateful travel to join uh, Balak and to try to curse the Jewish people and his attempts that failed miserably to try to curse them. And then at the end of the parasha, he gives a suggestion uh, not to curse them, but to try to, to try to get them to sin. And that indeed is effective. And then the parasha ends in the middle of uh, the chaos surrounding the suggestion that he gave and its aftermath. So the parsha starts with Balak. He sees everything that happened to the Emor, to the nation of last week's parsha that was swamped by the Jews. He's very terrified of the nation and he's very disgusted of the nation. And the fact that he's terrified, of course, is natural. He recognizes that he's next in the chopping block. But the fact that he's disgusted is is worthy of, of note. And Rashi explains that they were disgusted, they kind of lost their will to live. And it's interesting that the uh, this terminology appears also in the Torah with regards to a nation being disgusted of the Jewish people with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, they were, um, the Jewish people were very numerous, very profligate, and as a result... The, the Egyptians were disgusted by them. It's an, it's, and it's interesting here uh, that the term being used in these very different settings, the Jews in Egypt, they were enslaved. They were subjugated. They were second-class citizens. But there was something about their meteoric growth that was so nauseating and disgusting to their overlords. And here, uh, the Jews are a very different threat. The Jews are now a military threat. But that same contempt... And disgust remains. And I think it's, it's perhaps noteworthy that there's something that's fixed, perhaps, about the relationship uh, or the perception of the Jewish nation uh, in the eyes of the world around us, the greater world. You see this a lot today where there's a, you know, reason-defined hatred, for example, of Israel. Uh, in the United Nations, of course, we know that, that, that that's what they do. That, that it's, it's a body uh, that's mission is to try to uh, disrupt Israel as much as possible. And you kind of wonder, like, where does this contempt, where does this hatred come from in, an, in a world 
where there's plenty of worthy villains that are that are deserving of uh, of hate and disgust. Yet somehow the Jews they seem to be a very uh, irresistible target. And I think that this really goes back to antiquity. You know, you see the Egyptians, they had a disgust, a contempt that was inexplicable of the Jewish people. They weren't a threat to them. Uh, here, they're steered, but besides for their fear, there's a disgust. And that maybe is, there's no way for them to explain it. It's kind of one of the fixed things they might have placed in the world, uh, a certain contempt of the Jews. And I, I would perhaps posit that the, the reason why that exists is it's as a mechanism to ensure Jewish continuity. If the Jewish people, if they're beloved and welcomed, there's a greater risk of them losing their national character and them assimilating and acculturating and losing what makes them special. But if there's something about the Jews, inexplicably so, that there's a disgust, that there's no way to explain it, and you can't rationalize with someone, you can't reason with someone who's not reasoned into a position, then uh, it's uh, it's almost a uh, it's an ordinance and it's, it's an assurance against us losing what is special about us. So Moab, that's the name of the nation. Balak heads the nation. They uh, assess the situation in verse four, and they say that the Jewish people are going to march through us and they're going to consume us the same way an ox swallows up. Vegetables. Basically, they're not going to have any resistance. If the mightier nations that surrounded us were totally vanquished by the Jews, uh, we're much more comparatively weaker militarily, they're going to find no resistance. So they send messengers to Bilaam and they tell him, behold, there's a nation that left Egypt. They covered the land. They're right now opposite me. They're threatening me. They're looming. And do, please do me a favor, don't curse this nation because they're so mighty. And perhaps if you if you curse them, I could strike them. They'll be vulnerable and I could banish them from the land because I know that whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is cursed. That's the message uh, that was sent to Bilaam and they sent a commission of ministers and important people to go try to uh, uh, woo Bilam into going to curse this and taking on this mission. Now, this Bilam character, one of the fascinating characters in, in, in all of Torah. Uh, Rashi here brings what the Talmud says about Bilam that Bilam was indeed a great prophet. And in the end of the Torah, in the eulogy the Torah gives for Moshe, the Torah declares that there will never be in the Jewish people a prophet like Moshe. So the fact that it says it's only limited to the Jewish people. Moshe is the greatest prophet the Jewish people have ever seen. But that implies that outside the Jewish people, it's possible that there is a prophet that is even on the same level or even supersedes that of Moshe. Who is this prophet amongst the non-Jews that is equal to Moshe? That's Bilaam. So this is obviously someone of incredible ability. So why is it so important? Well, why does Bilaam have prophecy? Like what, what about him is special or unique that makes him worthy of such a high level of prophecy? So Rashi quotes from the Talmud that uh, asked the same question that we asked. Why did the Almighty give prophecy to this wicked person? And the answer is that there should not be a 
an excuse for the for the nations to say if we had prophesied, we would have repented. This means is that the Almighty is not playing favorites. The fact that the Jewish people have someone like Moshe who's able to guide them and to navigate all the obstacles in their march to greatness, that it would not be fair if the Jews were the only ones who had such an opportunity to have such a leader. And therefore, in order to quiet and quell any protests, that it's not fear, the man says, you know what, I'm going to give the non-Jews someone of equal or greater ability. Let's see what he does. So indeed, Bilaam, he is the prophet whose greatness is unearned. The only reason why he was a prophet, not because he worked really hard to achieve that, like, like all prophets need to, it's because th- this had to happen. There has to be a, an opportunity at least for the nations to have someone equivalent to Moshe or else it's not fair. That's what Rashi says. Okay, so there is this need to have Bilaam as a prophet. And the obvious question is, okay, if there's a need to give prophecy to a non-Jew or else there's a decent claim, we would have, we need someone like Moshe, why not give it to someone of refined character? We see Bilaam throughout the story. He's dead set on cursing the Jewish people. If you go into the Midrashic sources, you find that he really had corrupt character. And the question is, why him? Maybe give it to someone else. So I think there's, there's several answers given to this question. Uh, one of them is that uh, unearned greatness is not transformational. Moshe, because he worked so hard to achieve his greatness, therefore the greatness came in concert with all the great character development. And therefore, every step in growth in prophecy was a step in growth in character. And therefore, the greater the prophet, the greater the character, the greater the personality. Whereas someone who was just gifted it, but did not actually work hard to get it, then their capacity to sin is not only not limited, it's actually increased. So an example... The Jews at Sinai, uh, while not technically the same as Bilaam, uh, functionally it's just kind of the same thing. Effectively, it's the same thing. They achieved prophecy at Sinai, and uh, they didn't really earn it. And it had to be br- brute-forced. Well, what happened 40 days later? The golden calf. Well, how do you have the golden calf? You had prophecy. It, it should have changed you. The answer is no, it doesn't change you. Prophecy itself doesn't change you unless the prophecy was earned. If the prophecy is unearned, the fact that you had great heights of insight and understanding of God, it doesn't mean that it'll actually change you. Uh, That's one possible angel, a very similar angel, but somewhat different, is that any greatness that anyone does demands that they take a step in humility. And I've given this example before. Suppose someone goes on a diet, right? The first thing they start doing is judging other people and feeling better. A, a, a day later, they were also at the smorgasbord stuffing their face, right? That was just the, yeah, that was just yesterday. But they decide to go on the South Beach diet or whatever, the Atkins diet, or they're going to do uh, 1,500 calories a day, that's it, and they're going to start doing exercise. Right away, they're the most, you know, they have the greatest willpower of anyone on the block, right? And anyone who is not like that, they look down upon them. That's just the human character. And that's why it's so tricky when someone wants to become a better person 
ironically, you can become better in one vector, and in the other one, you you get worse. And that's ironically counterintuitively. Some you know, it's a, it's it's weird that you could do something good, and the net result, the aggregate result, is the fact that you're worse off because now you're 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 more prideful, you're more arrogant, and you look down at other people. Well, what have you gained? And that's why in, in, in Torah, and this is many sources that I have, there's an interesting example to this. Every step of someone's greatness has to have with it a parallel step of humility just to stay the same way, just to remain at par. Because if you don't have the step in humility, then invariably you'll have a step, uh, in the opposite direction. So there's a halacha, a fascinating halacha we know in the Shmona Esri, in the Amidah prayer, there's four blessings. The first, and the second and two at the end, where you're supposed to bow. And even though there's 18 blessings, in fact, there's 19 blessings, you only bow at four of them. That's the halacha. However, the Talmud tells us the halacha is, with regards to a kohen gadol, a high priest, well, he's the spiritual leader of the people, right? He has to bow at the beginning and at the end of each blessing. Because he is greater than his peers, therefore he has to have a parallel upgrade in his humility to God. And therefore he's bowing even more to God. And the king, who is even greater, more prestigious, higher stature than the Kohen Gadol, he has to have the entire prayer whilst bowing, whilst genuflecting to God. And that indeed demonstrates the fact that whatever step of greatness we have, we have to always have a parallel statement, a parallel step in uh, in our humility. Bilam, he had his greatness. He didn't mix that with, he didn't marbleize that with uh, humility. And therefore, we see really where it could bring uh, terrible pride and arrogance. So let's look at an example of his pride and arrogance. Verse 7, they send a contingency from Moab and Midian, and they have these charms or these gifts that come to Bilam, and they send the message of Balak, we want you to come curse the Jewish people. And he tells them, I want you to stay here overnight. Whatever God tells me, that's what I'll do. And now this, by the way, shows that Bilam's prophecy was only at night. Uh, as opposed to Moshe, his prophecy was during the day. So in the middle of the night, the Almighty comes to, to Bilam and says, who are these people with you? So he responds in verse 10, the Balak, the king of, uh, Balak ben Sipor, the king of Moab, he sent to me. So this, it's interesting how this uh, conversation is parsed out. What What does God tell Bilaam? Who are these people that are with you? What's the correct answer to that question? Yeah, of course, you know who these people are and you don't need to ask me. And the Talmud says, by the way, this is very similar to the question that God asked Cain. Where's your brother? And the Talmud connects those two. And Talmud said, and there's a third example as well. Um, but Talmud says that there was three people that were inspected by, were tested by God, and they failed. And two of them are Cain and Bilaam. Cain was asked, where's your brother? And the correct answer to that is, of course, you know very well where my brother is. And he comes up with a cockamamie answer, you know, I'm my brother's keeper. And here... Bilaam has said, who are the, is asked, who are these people? And he should have told, he should have uh, answered that you know everything, you don't need my help at all. Uh, and indeed, he failed. 
But also, what does he what does he what does he tell God in verse ten? His answer is Balak ben Sipor Melech Moab. Balak, the the king of Moab, he sent to me. What he's trying to do is flaunt his uh, his greatness. God, you may not think I'm any special, but you know what? The king, he needs me, and he sent a whole group to come and try to court me to uh, to to help him with his uh, with his mission. And he continues, there's a nation left Egypt, and uh, maybe go curse them, and I can banish them, and God tells Bilam, don't go with them, don't curse the nation, the nation is blessed. Try to curse the nation, it's not going to work, because it's, uh, it's, it's not up for, uh, for change. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a blessed nation, that part is fixed, and curses will not be... Uh, will not uh, achieve their goal. So in the morning, Philem tells all the people that were staying there, "Sorry, does not let me let, let me go." They go back to Bal- to Balak, and he says, "Well, Bilam doesn't want to go with me." Balak understands that what Bilam really wants is a more as a bigger group, a larger contingency of more important, more uh, prestigious people. So he sends him a second group with greater ministers that are more honorable than these. And again, they repeat the request: "Don't uh, withhold from coming to me, with to me and helping me. I'll give you great honor. Whatever you want, I'll do." And Bilam responds in verse eighteen: "If if Balak gives me a house full of gold and silver, I can't go against what God says." But in fact, he's saying, "Wink, wink. I'd love to have some gold and silver." Uh, and he tells him, you know what, let's stay for one more night. I'll ask out again. Maybe he'll relent this time. And indeed, in the middle of the night, the Almighty comes to Bilam, and he tells him, if these people, if they came to call you, then indeed you should go with them. However, provided that whatever I tell you to do, you do. You don't deviate from what I tell you to do. Talmud understands this or derives from this Exchange in a way, in a path that someone wants to go, they are led. Bilam, indeed, the first time he asked God, Can I go? And God said, No, you can't go. And he repeated, he asked again, and because he wanted so much to go, the Almighty says, You have free will. This is what this is the path that you choose. Indeed, you can go in that path. Um, and it's interesting. So Talmud actually explains it in two ways. If someone comes to purify themselves, then they help him. If someone wants to pursue impurity, then the, the doors are open before them. And uh, I think a, a good lesson for this is that don't be convinced that because someone is – because the path is open, the path that you choose is open, it must be the good path. The fact that Bilam says, well, God says I could go. Obviously, this is what he wants. Not quite. He told you specifically the first time not to go. And he's only allowing you to go. He's only relenting because you are so desirous of it. He's going to allow you uh, to do this even though it's to your detriment. Okay, so Bilam is emboldened and he wakes up in the morning. He wakes up early and he saddles his donkey. His donkey. And uh, and he goes with the ministers of Moab. 
Now, Bilaam was a really important guy, yet he's saddling his own donkey. And Rashi tells us that this shows us that uh, hatred corrupts. There's a normal course of action. Bilaam was a really important guy. He should have one of his stable boys saddle the donkey. But because he was so inspired and motivated to go curse the Jewish people, all the norms went out the window and he said, I'm going to do it myself. And if you remember all the way back with Abraham, when Abraham was given a mission by God, go do the binding of Isaac, Abraham as well, he himself, despite the fact that he had many servants and many stable boys perhaps that could have done the job, he went and saddled his own donkey. Uh, but when Abraham did it, that shows that love corrupts as well. There's a normal course of action, but when you have a, a, a deep emotion, either a love or a hate, then the normal way of doing things goes out the window. And um, part of my uh, uh, parenting philosophy is that uh, if someone really loves their child, then they do things that are that are corrupt. Like, you know, that um, classic example, the kid, uh, you ask them 25 times, do you want to have any more supper or any more dinner? No, I'm full. You put them in bed, all kinds of hunger pains descend upon them. And uh, so what's right? Well, I, I told you. Well, what's what's appropriate? I told you 10 times. You, you said you don't want to eat anymore. You eat tomorrow morning breakfast. I'm starving. You hate me, right? Um <laughs> So what's – but if your parent loves a child, yes, it's improper. It's not right. Yeah, it, it's improper for you to feed them now because it's, it's – it's, well, you told them, you warned them. Still, it, it, you, you love your child, you corrupt and you say, you know what, they'll bring you an apple or bring you a sandwich or whatever. When someone is motivated by, by hate, they'll do things that are corrupt. When someone is motivated by love, they'll do also things that are corrupt. But maybe that's okay. Like if, if you really love your child, sure. Like you show this an act of love to do something that's not right. That's actually an act of love. Yes, I, you don't deserve the food. But you know what? I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something anyhow because I love you. So Bilaam starts his trip and the Almighty places an angel of mercy to stop him. So he's traveling with his honest donkey and he has his two helpers with him. And there's an angel along the way brandishing a sword, not allowing them to pass. So uh, it's interesting. Rav Rashi here explains that this is an angel of mercy to stop him from sinning so he shouldn't be destroyed. And I think this really is a nice connection between the preceding insight that even though they might have allowed Bilaam to go sin, and even though the Almighty will open the door, if someone wants to chart a path of evil, the Almighty will allow them, but the attribute of mercy and, and love will still be present even after we, uh, the Almighty acquiesces that we choose our path, he provides the possibility of us being extricated from that path. So now, uh, really, one of the really strange episodes in the Torah uh, along the path. So Bilaam's heading now to, to Balak to go curse the Jewish people. There's an angel uh, standing along the way and the donkey sees the angel holding the sword and it goes off the path and it goes into the field and Bilaam hits it once 
And then the angel pops over into the field, and uh, it's now more botched in. And the donkey sees the angel a second time, and she starts kind of pushing towards the wall. And she uh, gets the leg of Bilam caught between it and the wall. He hits it a second time. And then it moves over to a third place, a very narrow place. There's no place to turn right nor left. And the animal crouches, and Bilam hits it a third time. So, first of all, the fact that it's we get so much detail of this story is, of course, noteworthy. And Rashi, for example, says that these three episodes are indicative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Abraham... He was kind of in the wide road. Abraham, his influence spread far and wide. He's a father of many nations. Uh, Isaac has a fence on one side, a fence on the other side. There's, there's Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is a place where it's very narrow. There's no place to go. All his kids kind of go in the right way. What this is essentially demonstrating is that Bilaam is trying to destroy a nation but what he's really trying to destroy, even though this is hundreds of years prior, is the handiwork of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's going to be impediments for him along the way. And then perhaps in the strangest uh, episode of the Torah, after the donkey's been hit three times, he opens his mouth and starts talking to Bilaam, why'd you hit me three times? And Bilaam responds, because you started laughing at me, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. And the donkey responds, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm your trustworthy donkey. You've had me for so long. I never did anything to you. And Bilaam agrees. And finally, in verse 31, Bilaam's eyes are uncovered. And he finally sees what the donkey saw prior. He sees the angel standing along the way with the brandishing sword and he jumps off his horse, his donkey, and bows down to the angel. And then, of course, a conversation results between Bilaam and now the angel that he sees. So we've said previously that whenever you see the word donkey in, um, in, in the Torah, it's, um, it references um, the most base of ideas. The word in, for Hebrew for donkey is chamor, uh, and the word for physicality, materialism, is chomer, same root. And that's because a donkey represents the physicality and the materialism. And uh, the conflict that we have in our life is, so to speak, with our internal donkey. Are we going to uh, grapple and struggle with it? Or are we going to allow it to control us? We start off life and we're under the control and the influence of the physicality, the physical world. That's that's what really motivates us. And Abraham, Abraham, we're told that he was riding on a donkey. What that means is that he was in total control. He had the reins of his physicality, not the other way around. Moshe, secondly, when he travels, he's also riding on a donkey. He's also in control. And the Talmud tells that there's, in the future, Messiah is going to ride on a donkey. Of course, it doesn't mean to a mode of transportation. It means uh, to 
uh, it's going to be the um, the model of, of who he is personally is that he's in total control of his physicality. Perhaps we could suggest that Bilam indeed, he had the same capacity to be like Moshe, to be someone who was able to ride on the donkey, yet even he lost it. The donkey became smarter than him. It kind of asserted its greatness above him. He was lower than the donkey. Almost the donkey was riding over him. The donkey had greater experiences than he had and was able to kind of talk back to him. Uh, and therefore, that kind of demonstrates the, um, I guess, the conflict that, that, that Billum had, or at least the potential that he could have had, and that maybe he had glimpses of on one hand. On the other hand, uh, he let it falter. He, he didn't maximize. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't capitalize on his opportunity to become as great as Moshe. Um, like maybe he could have been under uh, – if, if had he made other choices. Uh, so Bilaam, he gets to see the angel, and he has this whole conversation. But the word in, in verse 31, very powerful beginning of the of the verse. The verse says is that the Almighty uncovered Bilaam's eyes. And I think this is a good model to understand prophecy in general. Uh, but I would argue even all greatness. Bilaam, it wasn't that he couldn't see his eyes weren't working. He couldn't see the angel. His eyes were working, just they were covered by something. Once you remove the cover, then what do you just restore the vision that was already there? And I think uh, there's many sources to this, but the fact that uh, prophecy is conversation between God and our soul, if our soul was isolated, it could automatically have prophet. In fact, before our soul was placed in the body, the sources say that our soul already had prophecy. So it's not like we need to acquire certain eyeballs to be able to see prophecy. It's we need to uncover the the layer, the facade above our eyes, which may be, may be like our body. We have to remove the impediments and then the prophecy will be restored um, automatically. And this is really bizarre conversation between the angel and, and – um, and Bilam, he tells him, why do you hit why do you hit the animal? And he says, Well, the animal was in the way, and the animal saw me. The angel's like, maybe I should kill you and leave the animal alive. Uh, and Bilam, he says, I sinned. Should I go back? Should I head back? Bilam realizes maybe this is not such a good idea. And he's like, Well, should I go back? But he wasn't really all in. Like he was he wasn't really remorseful about his decision. He was just saying, if you force me to go back, I will go back. And the, and the angel tells him, no, you go ahead, but don't deviate from what I tell you to say. He finally arrives uh, to, uh, to Balak. He comes to greet him. And they begin their efforts to try to curse the Jewish people. First thing they do is they um, they take make a bunch of altars, seven altars, and they bring on each altar two sacrifices – and uh, and he begins to try to curse the Jewish people, and it ends up really, really poorly. Um, and in fact, there's you read the rest of the parsha. There's essentially four distinct prophecies that Bilam has. Uh, each one of them is a blessing on the Jewish people. The first one, like the Ramban writes, of course, there's many different commentaries on what exactly he's saying. But the Ramban writes that. 
if you look at the first prophecy, that's talking about the past of the Jewish people, the sources, the roots of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc. The second prophecy is on the present of the Jewish people. The third is on the future in the near term, which is the times of David and Solomon where the Jewish people were at their acme. And the fourth is in the distant future. In It's a, it's a prophecy on Messiah. And it's interesting. The Talmud tells us that the sages entertained the possibility or the notion of actually including Bilaam's prophecy in the Shema. We know the Shema is a collection of three sections of the Torah. Two in Deuteronomy, one from Numbers. There was an effort or a proposal to include the prophecies of Bilaam in the text of the Shema. Why? Because he was able to pinpoint the greatness of the Jewish nation, the strength, the power, and the identity of the people. And the only reason why they disincluded it ultimately was because it would be too long. And it would be too long of a prayer. And the and and uh, there's a great effort always made to not uh, make the public suffer by having such a long prayer. Good lesson there. And of course, because Bill, if this wasn't real prophecy about the Jewish people, it wouldn't be uh, here in the Torah. It's interesting that uh, who is chosen to deliver these amazing blessings about the Jewish people, these amazing compliments about the Jewish people, their, their greatest enemy. And I think, you know, if, you, if the Torah wants to tell us who we are, like who, what is the character of our nation when we are most perfect, who is chosen to deliver that message? Our greatest enemy. Because it's sometimes our greatest enemy that has the clearest, keenest perception of who we really are. And it's interesting, on the flip side, um, the uh, giants of Musser, they would always listen in to when their enemies would talk about them. And they would always stress that. Don't don't listen to what your best friends say about you. Hear what your enemies say about you. Because sometimes your enemy who is looking to find flaws may actually refer to a flaw that is real. And that will be a great insight to you because it will give you clarity in what it is you need to fix. Okay, so let's look a little bit about the about these prophecies. So he starts off, and it's, it's very poetic, very beautiful. Um, and he goes and he begins... How can I curse them? God's not curse them. How can I get angry? God's not angry at them. For from its origins, I see it rock-like. And from hills do I see it. Behold, it is a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. So first of all, he begins with its origins of the Jewish people. They're rock-like. The Jewish nation is compared to an edifice with very firm and deep roots and foundations. Of course, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And essentially, what what this is indicating that we're not a nation that was kind of that just evolved um, spontaneously or, or without uh, without uh, active processing or foresight. Uh, our roots of our nation are built by Abraham, Isaac, and James. Very strong foundations. Some of the greatest people that ever lived. Everything that they did was to try to mold and craft and form the nation to be as perfect as possible. You know, I would, I would perhaps suggest that kind of the American nation 
is not one that it, it, it was built by, you know, the founding fathers of the nation. And perhaps maybe the reason why uh, our nation, our the American nation, has been so much more successful and prosperous and peaceful uh, than any other nation in history is because uh, this was not done. This was not kind of the decisions weren't made kind of independent of each other. There was there, there was a vision and an ideal and a standard that was formulated by great people many, many hundreds of years ago, and they kind of charted a path through which the nation has a certain character to it. Whereas, I don't know, the, the French, where, where do they come from? The Germanic people, where do they come from? You know, what do they stand for? We don't know. Like, it's, you see a nation that really goes in very strange ways. Uh, where does it come from? It comes from not having very strong foundations. And because there's no strong foundations, it could be led in, in very horrific ways by leaders that are able to capture the nation the way it currently is and kind of move it to wherever they want it to be. And Bilam, when he wants to attack the Jewish people, he realizes that he's going to have to try to uproot them from their roots. And of course, the deeper the roots, the higher it is, the harder it is for it to be disrupted. And then he points out that we're a nation that will, that, that the Jewish people are a nation that will always live in solitude. And this indeed uh, is something that uh, we can't, or we, as much as we, we try, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. We will forever be alone. And you kind of see it uh, in every generation, but certainly today, you know, the Jewish nation sort of coalesced in Israel. And the dream, the Zionist dream, a nation like any other nation, a nation that has a, has a seat at the uh, international, the table of international decision-making. That's was, that was the dream, a nation like any other nation. And you look at the writings and the statements of the early Zionist leaders, uh, they were about the fact that we're, we're a Jewish nation, but a nation like any other. And we, could be, we will be accepted. And the truth is, we haven't been accepted. And we are a pariahified. We are different. And here we see that the prophecy states we're a nation that will live in solitude. And there's two ways to live in solitude. Either we're distinct through ourselves. We say we have a Torah. It's our Torah. We live by it. And that makes us different. However, if we choose to drop that and to assimilate and to acculturate and to lose what makes us distinct – then this will still apply, we'll still be a nation in solitude, it's just that that will be foisted upon us by our enemies. And indeed, every time in history, and it's of course chilling to think about it, that uh, specifically the nation uh, that tried to say we're going to be no different than our non-Jewish peers, that was the same nation that said, no, 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 here's your yellow star, you know, here's your tattoo, here's your uh, uh, we'll put a label, brandish your stores. Like, we'll, we'll make you distinct in ways that are very, very uh, embarrassing and very humiliating. Uh, the fact that we're a nation that will be distinct is, uh, is immutable. However, how we achieve that distinction is up to us. It's not fun to think of the fact that we'll always be different. It's not a fun thing to think, to think about it. But it's also, I think, important to realize that if we weren't different, we wouldn't have survived. Especially the chaotic route that we took throughout history, there's no way uh, 
well, historically, it's a historical anomaly, a nation that's gone through so much, yet has managed to maintain its identity uh, throughout all the exiles and the expulsions. It's never happened before in history. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why we have remained is because we there's something about our nation that will always be distinct no matter what. Uh, of course, Balak is terribly disappointed. He hired Bilaam to curse the Jewish people. Instead, he gives this glowing blessing. Uh, and he's like, what's the deal? And Bill tells him, I'm sorry, I was forced into this. God forced me to say this. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, uh, say anything else. They say, you know what? Let's change the vantage point. Let's move to a different mountain. Let's get a different angle. And this is endemic to Bill's character. The thought that whatever he wants to do is inachievable, that doesn't cross his mind. He always looks at circumstances. He says, well, maybe the fact that I had this angle, not that angle, I could change kind of the small tertiary aspect, the ancillary aspects of my efforts, and that will change everything. When what he should have said is, well, God doesn't want me to curse them. I should really go home before I make it worse uh, for you. So he goes to the other mountain, and he does the same thing. He builds seven altars, brings sacrifices, and he continues with, again, more glowing prophecies of the Jewish people. How could I curse the Jewish people? Well, God doesn't change his mind. God's not a man, nor the son of man. He should relent. Uh, he promised the Jewish people will be blessed. How could I contradict them? There's no sin amongst Jacob. There's no perversity in Israel. Hashem, his God, Israel's God is with him. And the friendship of the king is in him. This nation is close to God. There's no way to seize that. This nation that they were taken out of Egypt by God. Extracted from Egypt. It wasn't just that they left Egypt, they were taken out. There's no sorcerers amongst the nation. There's no gurus and holy people amongst the nation. And therefore, they are blessed. They are like a young lion. They are like a mighty lion. Nothing's going to stop them. So, again, these are amazing blessings. We have to get dig into each one of them um, properly. But Obviously, you see, he's saying this is a nation, a, a remarkable nation, and nothing we could do about it uh, to change that. It's interesting in verse 23 where he says, the nation is worthy of blessing because they don't go to visit gurus or divination or sorcery. And I would just quickly say, you know, we choose who we want to bless us. If someone goes to a human guru or palm reader or holy man and says you give me a blessing okay you want this person to give you blessing you choose that or you could choose to have god bless you um which one would you want bill is saying these people don't have those kinds of crutches spiritual crutches and therefore they're more most worthy of god's blessing again Bilam is absolutely apoplectic Balak is absolutely apoplectic with Bilaam. They go to a third mountain. He gives a third blessing again. He talks about the nation, how beautiful they are. Matovo Yaakov, how beautiful are your tents, Mishrosecha Yisrael, um, your encampments, O Israel. Again, just absolute beautiful um, words of blessing, words of, of honor to the nation. He finishes it. All those that bless you are blessed. All those that curse you are cursed. And Balak is absolutely exasperated. What could we do? I can't believe you blessed him three times. He gives a, th- a fourth blessing. He talks about Messiah and the future. Um, 
And finally, the verse ends, the, the, the parsha ends, chapter 25, where, where Bilaam gives him an advice. Bilaam advises a plot, a scheme, to try to, a third way to try to defeat the Jewish people. Initially, they realized the warfare was impossible. They tried blessing or cursing. That ended up uh, uh, failing horribly. And finally, they had a scheme and a plot to try to get the Jewish people to sin. And once, they're, once they sin, they will be vulnerable to uh, to attack. Once they once they once they uh, commit horrible misdeeds, they will lose their godly protection. So, what did they do? Um, the daughters of Moab started to commit harlotry with the Jews, and they got them to sin and to bow down to their gods. So a few important things here. So what was their idol? It was called Baal Peor. Peor is the name of their idol. Rashi tells us how they would worship it in a really demeaning way. They would actually defecate uh, in front of it. That's what uh, that was the method of this form of idolatry. And the meaning behind it is well, what's the underlying philosophy? Of this idolatry is that it's a it's like a nihilism. It's like nothing nothing matters. Uh, everything's every, everything's going down to destruction. It's it's pessimism. It's malaise. What are we living for? It's all just a series of distractions until we die. Uh, and the truth is, you know, even uh, there's even life. And they're trying to show, of course, everything you do, it's all, it's all going to end up in, in the toilet, right? Uh, but we know that uh, if you want to have new growth and new life, you have to have fertilizer. There's life captured. Even in the things that are discarded, there's, there's value in life. That's our attitude that we have. But regardless, that was this kind of idolatry. That was the, that was the magnetism of this idolatry. Like, what, what's, what are we living for anyhow? It's, we're, we're all heading back to nothing. And it's interesting, you look at verse 2, it's, uh, it describes what they would do. They would get the people to sin, they would, give, they would feed them. They invited the people to the feast of their gods, the people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods. Why is it important to mention that they ate? So if you remember, the diet that the Jewish people are uh, following is a manna diet. The one characteristic of the manna diet uh, is that uh, this form of idolatry is impossible because the, the people would not need to go to the bathroom. There was nothing extra. There was nothing missing. And that, of course, is the Jewish ideal. Like everything is, everything can be used for a mitzvah. Everything is could be made holy. There's nothing that's there that that, that is refuse that is not valuable. Uh, but and the only way to get the Jewish people to commit this form of idolatry is if. They have other food that does have refuse, and that's why they had to give them to, 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 uh, to eat. And sadly, the Jewish people became attached to this idol. This, this plot actually worked. And the Parsha ends. There's this um, climactic scene at the end of the Parsha, sort of a cliffhanger, where one of the leaders of the Jewish people, one of the judges of the nation, he takes a Midianite woman, Midianite princess, in front of Moshe, and they start sinning together in a tent. And Pinchas, the grandson of 
Aaron, he wants to end this, and he goes and stewards both the man and the woman amid their action. So uh, let's kind of understand what's going on over here. Uh, the Talmud describes in great detail in Sanhedrin on page 82 what he did. So first of all, these people came to Moshe, and they said to Moshe, he, this, this man, Zimri, his name was, he was the head of the tribe of Shimon, and he said to Moshe, he brought this Midianite woman, her name was Cosby, and he says, okay, is this woman permitted or not? And he said, no, she's not permitted. And they responded, well, if you remember who you married, you married a Midianite woman. Midianite Moabite, their neighbors, what's the difference? So why are you let to marry your wife and I'm not allowed to marry this woman? And of course, the answer is that was all before Torah. And before the Torah was given, and at Sinai, everyone became Jewish. Whoever was part of the nation then became Jewish. There was many Egyptians that joined. And therefore, Moshe's wife, she joined with everyone else. Uh, Post-Sinai, well, now there's laws. If someone wants to convert, she can convert, sure, but she's not permitted uh, yet. Uh, and regardless, uh, he takes her and goes to the tent. And it's, uh, of, of course, a terrible blight uh, upon the Jewish people that such a thing is happening um, in front of everyone. So Pinchas, he remembers a law that everyone seems to have forgotten. The law tells us uh, that there's three instances where someone is allowed to go and take the law into his own hand uh, in an extrajudicial fashion, and one of them is when someone, for example, steals a uh, vessel of the temple. If you see someone stealing a vessel of the temple, you don't need to call the court, and you can right away go grab it, even if it means killing the guy to save it. That's one example. But another example is what's called a boil aramis. If someone is publicly uh, engaging in this kind of behavior, uh, then someone who is a zealot is allowed to go and kill him. Now, what's interesting is that this is not a blanket uh, immunity. So if this zealot, we know that if someone comes to kill you, you let to kill them first, right? Now, if, if the court, if the execution of the court comes to kill you, then you can kill him because he's doing it. He has the permission, indeed the duty to do it. That's his job. He's the executioner. But in this case, where Pinchas, he was on this extrajudicial zealous path to kill Zimri, he did not have that blanket protection. And therefore, had Zimri turned around and shot Pinchas, Zimri would be entitled to do that. He's allowed to defend himself, even though he's sinning. Even because this is not a judicial, this is not a case where someone was told go do it. It's just if someone does it, they're not tried. So, so what what is this zealot? So, first of all, Talmud says uh, that if someone goes to court, right? Someone sees what's happening, right? And they go and they ask, they convene a court, and they say, "Am I allowed to go kill this guy?" The answer was no, because. That demonstrates that, that person is not a zealot. A zealot is someone who doesn't ask questions. A zealot is someone who is so consumed with the fact that there is a terrible defilement of God's honor at present, they don't ask questions. If they do ask questions, it shows they're not a zealot and therefore they're not a, a candidate to have this judicial law. Um, but remember, the zealot himself who does that, he gets shot and that's a total 
that's totally legal. So it's this really strange extrajudicial case where if either side kills the other side, they're not being they're not going to be judged for it. They're not going to be right. If if Pinchas kills, then well, he's a zealot. If Zimri kills Pinchas, then well, he was being pursued by by Pinchas, and therefore he defended himself as he he's allowed to. So 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 what happened here? Let's the Gemara describes what happened. Uh, Pinchas, uh, he was of course Aaron's grandson, and there was a whole ring of bodyguards around the tent that. Uh, were trying to defend anyone from stopping this from happening. So Pinchas says, I want to get involved. And he kind of deceived them by saying he wants to participate in the sin. He slips a peg from the tent in his, in his, uh, in his garment, his pocket. They don't find it. He goes there and he stabs them in one fell swoop and through the genitalia. And then the, Talmud describes that the tent billowed open and he was able to hold them up, brandish them in the air. They didn't fall off and to show everyone what he did and what they were doing. And uh, no one attacked him. The Talmud lists a whole, a whole, a whole bunch of miracles that happened to Pinchas in this, uh, in this episode. Now, what, what is interesting is that Pinchas is being attributed in verse seven back to Aaron. We know Aaron was the, was the, Master of peacemaking was a master of love and kindness. It is it is surprising that someone who's acting out of zealotry, we're right away linking him back to Aaron. When you would imagine Aaron wouldn't do such a thing, but uh, perhaps we could suggest that Pinchas was someone who wasn't motivated by hate; he was motivated by love. It's just that uh, he was so consumed with love of God, and love of his man, he did not stand idle when. Um, when such a terrible thing was happening. And in next week's Parsha, Parsha titled Pinchas, we're going to find out the uh, after effects, the aftermath of this act of zealotry.